Hey everyone, this is Dave Korsunsky from Data Driven Health Radio. On this show, we look at how individuals are empowering themselves and using data to transform the way they manage their health. We interview the health experts and the scientists that will help you understand and interpret the data. We speak with the entrepreneurs who are building the tools and the technology that are allowing us to quantify our health in novel and powerful ways. And most importantly, we speak to the individuals who are beating the odds on everything from cancer to diabetes to weight loss and general health and wellness. This show is brought to you by Aura. They make a state-of-the-art ring that can track sleep cycle analysis, activity, and recovery. You can learn more about this product at headsuphealth.com Aura. That's O-U-R-A. This show is also brought to you by our good friends over at Keto Mojo. They are making a highly accurate and highly affordable device for testing blood sugar and blood ketones. Check it out at headsuphealth.com slash ketomojo. And lastly, the show is brought to you by Level. They are making a clinical-grade breath ketone analyzer, which measures your level of fat burning and ketosis through a simple breath. You can learn more at headsuphealth.com slash level. That's L-E-V-L. All of these amazing products are integrated with Heads Up Health. They all allow you to quantify your health in novel and powerful ways. So check them out. Thank you to our sponsors. Welcome to our show, and let's get into it. Welcome to Data Driven Health Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky, and I have a very special guest, the lovely and talented Amy Berger, who I had the great pleasure of meeting in person, finally, at the Nutrition Therapy Association Conference, which was in Vancouver a few weeks ago. And Amy has done some really amazing work for us on our blog that helps people interpret and understand the lab tests that can be helpful as you're adopting a low-carb ketogenic eating plan. So Amy, thank you for joining us and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, hey Dave and hey everybody. Um, What is there to tell? Uh, I am a- Author, (laughs) blogger, everything, you're all over the place. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I am a low-carb and keto and paleo-oriented nutritionist and writer. I am the Uh author of the book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, which is about using a low-carb diet as a nutritional intervention for Alzheimer's disease and cognitive impairment. My blog is tuitnutrition.com, and I have a small but very loyal and dearly beloved following. And that's awesome. it, and I, I've, I've written some posts for, uh, for Heads Up Health on lab testing. Yeah, you crushed it at your presentation at the Thanks. Nutritional Therapy Association Conference. Thank you. It was on the topic of Alzheimer's, I believe, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, today what I was hoping we could do, Amy, I know that – A lot of the recent work you've been doing is around the book and around topics on the blog, but I was hoping we could just take today's show and run through the blog posts you've written for Heads Up Health and more specifically around the blood tests and how these can help individuals understand where they're at in terms of their current level of metabolic health and then also how to use these numbers as guides to progress. And I know one of the themes that you really try to focus on in all of your writing for us is that health is a mosaic and not to look at one number in isolation and how to look at these numbers in the bigger picture. So I think helping people understand how to interpret this data and not misinterpret this data is as important, if not more important than the absolute numbers themselves. So I'm talking about that. Yes, go ahead. I could not agree more. Um, I, I try to emphasize that in the writing and then with clients that I work with individually, you know, not to make any big judgments or freak out or not freak out based on any one measurement in isolation, you know, like there may be, you know, cases here and there where there's Mm -hmm. something that's so off that it really does indicate a problem, but you do have to look at everything all together. And I just, 
you know, I, th- I think you said the magic word. I, I think you said the word interpret, or maybe I, I heard the word yes. interpret. I don't know. Yes. It's, it's not just what is the number, but what does that mean? What is that mm-hmm. telling me? Because, you know, just as one, one quick example, we'll, we'll get into details, but exercise, especially intense exercise, raises blood glucose. Mm-hmm. And people really worry if, if they test their blood sugar right after exercising. Oh my God, my blood sugar went up 20 points. That's normal. That's yeah. not a problem. That's not yeah. pathological. That's normal. But if, yes. you don't, if you don't have the education to know that that's normal and, and to expect that, mm-hmm. then you worry. And so I think try, you know some of what both you and I do is to try to help people understand how to make sense of what they see. Okay, the, the number is great, but what does it mean? You know? Cool. Yep. I've seen my blood sugar go through the roof after different types of exercise. Mm -hmm. So I I completely understand that. And yes, it could be misleading for people or cause concern. So that's what we're here to do is to go through some of these numbers. And for those who are interested, everything that we're going to talk about today, Amy has written about on the Heads Up blog. So if you want more information on any of the tests that we're going to talk about, we've gone into way more detail. There's reference ranges in those posts. There's a lot of other helpful information. Part of the reason I started Heads Up Health was because I realized when I went through my own health journey that I really wanted to see the results of my blood tests next to the information about the lifestyle changes I was making. That could be exercise or sleep or supplementation or whatever the case may be. I wanted to see how those two pieces were connected. And what I realized was that the lab tests were in some doctor-patient portal, in my case, four different patient portals. And the other information on, for example, the food I was eating and other things were information I was collecting at home. So we brought that information together in Heads Up Health. And very specifically, what I want to do is, is dive into some of these tests that people can use on a low-carb eating plan. And the first post we did, Amy, was around three tests that can be used as an indicator of, let's just call it blood glucose levels. And you broke down three tests. Each of them looks at a different time horizon. So you looked at a glucose test you can do at home, which is just basically a point in time measurement. And then you looked at fructosamine, which is a marker that very few people I think are familiar with, but has a lot of value. And then the third one was on a longer time horizon, 90 days, I believe, is hemoglobin A1C. So that was the first set of tests we looked at. And if you could, Amy, just maybe summarize for individuals what we talked about on each of those. Yeah. So these are all markers of your blood glucose or blood sugar. I might use those two phrases interchangeably. Um, Mm -hmm. They mean the same thing. So a fasting blood glucose or or any blood glucose for that matter is if if you have one of those little home glucometers, those glucose meters, you can measure your glucose at any time of the day you want, whether Mm -hmm. it's first thing in the morning before you've eaten, right before a meal, after a meal. Regardless of when you test or what you're doing, um, that is just a measurement of your blood sugar at that particular time. doesn't tell you what it was two hours before. It doesn't tell you what it will be two hours later. Just at that moment in time, what is your blood glucose? And there's a lot of things that affect that besides just what you eat. It's not just the amount of carbohydrate in your meal or just the amount of protein. A lot of things on a chronic long-term basis affect what we call your glucoregulation or how your body handles, you know, carbohydrate and glucose could be sleep, could be stress. So it's not just a matter of food, but that tells you that one moment in time what your blood glucose is. Cool. The hemoglobin A1C. So hang on, also- Amy, before you leave that one, let's mm-hmm. for, for people who are not familiar with blood sugar testing, let's just, could you, could you break down really quickly what a fasting glucose means first thing in the morning? And then what does postprandial mean for people? And what are post-exercise would also be another one. So I think people sure. hear these terms a lot, but might not fully understand what they mean. All right, so the fasting blood glucose is typically the one that you'll get measured at the doctor's office when you go for your, your normal checkup. Mm-hmm. And that is usually first thing in the morning before you've had anything to eat. So Got depending it. on what time you ate your last meal the night before, it could be anywhere from like 8 to 12 or more hours since your last food intake. Mm-hmm. And that's your glucose measurement. So that's Generally, fasting glucose. First thing in the morning when you wake up. That's what I consider fasting glucose. I check mine every single morning and it's just a really good indicator. Before I've had anything to eat or drink for the day, I can check that measurement and it gives me a good indication of, for me, I use it as an indicator, almost like a report card on what the previous day was like. 
And I can, yeah, that's, it's a good way to look at it. And um, I think there's a little more nuance to it that will, I think is more relevant when we talk about A1C, but cool. yeah, that's the fasting glucose. Okay. A post postprandial is just a fancy way to say after a meal, it's yeah. after you've eaten. So mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a definition for it in terms of timing. Some people might say it's 30 minutes after you finish eating. Some people might say it's 60 minutes. Some people will even say it's 60 or 30 minutes, whatever, from the time you start eating rather than from the time you finish eating. To be honest, it doesn't really matter how you define it as long as if you happen to keep to keep track of your own postprandial or postmeal glucose, make sure it's the same time for yes. you. Whether you do it at 60 minutes after your meal starts or 60 minutes after your meal ends, just keep it consistent so that you see the trend in your own body. Yeah, I, um, I set the timer after I finish eating, so after my last bite. And I know some people do it when they start, but like mm-hmm. you said, as long as you're consistent personally, yeah, that's the main thing so that your numbers are comparable over time. Is that correct? Right. Right, for your own trend keeping. And Um, what should people see? Like I eat a meal and I want to test at like 30 minutes, 60 minutes, two hours is kind of like the standard time that you would test. And then some people even like to test three hours. And typically you want to see a nice curve. Is that correct? Where you have a normal insulin response to food and then the body slowly starts to bring it down towards levels that existed Premium. What are you looking for when you have people do those postprandial measurements? You'll hear a lot of different things depending on who you ask, depending on what you eat and how insulin sensitive you are, how how carbohydrate tolerant you are. Your glucose may barely budge. You know, your pre-meal could be in the seventies, eighties, or nineties, and. 30 minutes, an hour later, it'll still be in the 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll rise up a little bit, 110, 120, and then within an hour or two, you're back down again under 100. Some people, you know, obviously, especially if you are type 2 diabetic, usually your your glucose will skyrocket after that meal and it will stay elevated for a while, you know, depending on a lot of different factors. Sure. I think the American Diabetes Association says after two hours, you want it to be below 140. So we're, we're using like the American units, the 140 mm-hmm. milligrams per deciliter. That might be only their definition of the response to the oral glucose tolerance test rather than post-meal. But I know m- most, most of the physicians I know would definitely want to see it under 140, if not closer to the baseline level within two hours and definitely within three hours. And baseline yep. meaning what, what it was before the meal. Cool. And I think you went into more detail in all of this on the blog post. So I just wanted to cover some basic terminology, especially for people who may have just ordered a meter for the first time and they're just starting to learn how to test and just are not familiar with some of that terminology and, and yeah. what to look for. So, And if, if you are testing after a meal, whether you're a diabetic or not, if you do see it go up 20, 30 points, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's... I hate to use the word normal, but that's to be expected. If you eat food, that's to be expected. If it's going up 100 points, 70 points, you know, maybe you're eating too much carbohydrate. But if it goes up 10, 20, 30 points, that's normal. I've had clients say, you know, I ate X food and my blood sugar skyrocketed to 110. And I said, yeah. What, one test? That's still pretty good. That's yeah. not much of a rocket. Yeah. That's a pretty. That's a pretty pathetic rocket if it's only yeah. skyrocketing to one ten. So you have to like have an appreciation for what these different values even are. That's part of the interpretation in all of right. this, understanding yeah. how to interpret the numbers. Actually, yeah. that's not a bad thing, and that's I think what what we're help, here to try to do today. Right. So then uh, the next one was moving from the the point in time measurement. The next one you covered was um, fructosamine. So fructosamine is also a measurement of your blood sugar, but it is about a two to three week average of your blood sugar. And that's also, again, not something you can test at home like you can with the glucose. The fructosamine is glycated albumin, if I remember right. It's a protein in your blood Mm -hmm. that can you know, sugar will latch onto this protein and, and that protein has a certain half-life in the blood. And so by measuring the amount of sugar that has glommed onto that protein, it's taken to be a two to three week average measurement of what your blood sugar is. Yep. So that's kind of a good, maybe a better measurement of your glucose status than any one single blood glucose measurement. Yeah, I've heard some doctors I've spoken with lately who actually prefer that one over hemoglobin A1C for various reasons. 
Yes. I mean, so hemoglobin A1C is kind of like fructosamine, except it's a longer average. It's, it's taken to be about a three to four month average instead of two to three weeks. Yep. But there's a lot of different things that affect the hemoglobin A1C measurement. So the hemoglobin A1C is glycated hemoglobin. It's glucose in the blood that has stuck onto the hemoglobin protein in the blood. The hemoglobin A1C the reason they say it's about a three or four month average is because that's the average lifespan of a red blood cell. But due to totally normal variations, genetic polymorphisms, different ethnicities have different variants of the hemoglobin protein that cause those red blood cells to live longer or have a, a shorter lifespan. And that affects the hemoglobin A1C. So you might have a level that's hot, you know, it looks higher than your blood sugar really is, or it looks lower than your blood sugar really is. And mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm not 100% clear on the fructosamine, but I think the fructosamine is not affected by that. So cool. some doctors do think it's a more accurate thing than, than the A1C. Because there, I know a lot of very, very healthy people on low carb diets who every time they test their blood glucose, it's, almost never above 100, yet their A1C is 5.4, which 5.4 is not high, but it's higher than you would expect in someone whose glucose ranges from the 70s to 90s of all course. the time. Yep. Okay. And that's, that is due to some of those variations. Okay. So glucose at home with the glucometer, point in time measurements, very helpful for understanding the effects of food, lifestyle, exercise, how you did the previous day. And then we had the fructosamine, two to three week average but doesn't suffer from some of the limitations of the hemoglobin A1C. And the hemoglobin A1C, I guess, is the more common number, but it, it is, is it subject is. to some shortcomings, as you described. So yeah. that was the first post we did. We've outlined those three tests. Those can be used to get a good sense of your own personal blood sugar levels. Fructosamine and A1C, obviously, you have to go to a lab to have a uh, blood draw? Actually, they have they have home meters now for A1C. I don't know how reliable they are, cool. but they do sell, I think it's called A1C now, you can get it at the drugstore. And I, I wanna say, I do think if A1C is very high, that tells you there's a problem. Yes. I think only if it's kind of in the, the, the gray zone area, if it's yep. higher than you expect or lower than you expect. But if it's, if it's in a diabetic range, I don't think that's one of those hemoglobin Got it. confusing issues. I think that's, that's a problem. Yes, that's helpful. Okay, yeah. so the next one we covered, Amy, which was part two of the low-carb lab testing series, which is, it's kind of a loaded topic, but it's the fasting insulin test. And there's a lot to cover there about why that marker is so often overlooked or not ordered and actually why it's so important. So could you help us understand what that test is and why it's so important and how it needs to be looked at in the context of also a blood sugar measurement? Because I think a lot of people have never had this test done. It's not on a routine physical. Don't ask me why. So what's the deal there? Yeah, so I think, I think the title of this blog post was the, the most important test your doctor isn't ordering. Absolutely, yep. And that just could not be more true. Um, it's the fasting insulin, and just like the fasting glucose, it's basically your insulin level in the morning before you've had anything to eat. Mm -hmm. And as for why it's not a routine part of standard blood work like your glucose is at a, at a normal checkup, I think it's just because doctors don't know. Mm -hmm. The medical establishment as a whole is unaware of just how critically critically important this number is. And the reason it's so important is because there are so many people with totally normal blood glucose, whether fasting or A1C, or if you, if you take a glucose tolerance test where you have yep. to drink the glucose and the doctor yep. tests your blood sugar. glucose tolerance test. Right. So there's literally millions of people with totally normal glucose, yet they have tons and tons of complications and metabolic problems that we would associate with type 2 diabetes. And they're not diabetic because their blood sugar is normal. And the they're not reason, diagnosed accordingly. So the, Correct. Yeah. They're, they're not normal. diagnosed. And the reason those things are, are normal is because very, very high insulin is keeping the glucose in check. And that doesn't mean you're healthy. It doesn't mean you're metabolically healthy. It means that you are what we call hyperinsulinemic. You, your insulin is chronically high. And this, this alone, the high insulin, 
even in the presence of normal blood sugar, is responsible for almost any chronic illness that you can think of that is plaguing the world today. Type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, PCOS, gout, erectile dysfunction, hypertension, obesity, you name it, it's all insulin. One of my favorite papers that I read was one that you published with Dr. Fung in the Journal of Insulin Resistance. Is that the mm -hmm. correct name? Mm -hmm. That was probably the most succinct breakdown of the problem that I've come across. So we'll share the link to that paper here, but it looks at the importance, just like you described, of understanding insulin levels. And so I guess, Amy, if I could explain it back, it's, it's the body's way of overcompensating and it's elevating insulin to keep the blood sugars down, but that's actually not a good thing. It is actually a system that is out of balance. Is that the right way to think about it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And again, this is also a test that you cannot get at home. There currently is no technology I'm aware of to test insulin levels at home. I wish there was a finger stick that could help do insulin. That doesn't exist yet. So fasting insulin is a test that you need to order on your own or you can ask your doctor to run it. So that was the second one, and, and Amy goes into way more detail on this topic with reference ranges and examples in um, part two of low-carb lab testing. It's on the Heads Up Health blog. But just to summarize, that was what we did call the most important test that your doctor's probably not running. So that's why we looked at it as part two. And that kind of led us into the third part of that series, which was something called HOMA-IR, which right. kind of a just an acronym basically, but it looks at glucose and insulin together. And it looks at the, almost like the ratio of the two and almost gives you a score, if you will. It is a score and you need to get glucose and insulin tested together, both fasting, correct? And then there is a calculation that is based on a number of uh, published academic papers that gives you an insulin resistance score based on these two numbers. So can you elaborate on that one, Amy? Yeah. So like we were saying before, you might have a totally normal glucose, but very, very high insulin. And HOMA IR will tell you if you're at risk for metabolic illness because of this. So what the HOMA, HOMA IR, it's H-O-M-A, homeostatic model assessment or model of assessment of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So HOMA IR, it's, it's H-O-M-A. I think it stands for homeostatic model assessment of insulin resistance. And, and by HOMA static it means how hard does the body have to work to maintain that healthy balance and the HOMA IR tells you how much in body has to pump out in order to keep that glucose that's what's going to tell you if your insulin is normal because of high uh, if your glucose normal because of high insulin because in many cases especially of type 2 diabetes but other metabolic diseases too the glucose is going to be normal because the body's going to pump out insulin and pump out insulin and pump it out for years and decades. Eventually, though, your body will get to the point where either the body's still pumping it out, but the cells don't care, or the pancreas, the beta cells, they call it beta cell burnout or beta cell exhaustion. The pancreas actually can't keep pumping out the same amount of insulin. Either way, the end result is that at that point, the blood glucose begins to rise. But that's a late stage development in this metabolic problem that has been brewing for years. So I think the HOMA IR is the big tip off point to the people that have normal glucose, but high insulin. And, and I also think part of the problem with both the fasting glucose and the fasting insulin is that you may even have normal fasting insulin, but mm -hmm. still have chronic hyperinsulinemia. And you would have signs and symptoms of chronically high insulin in some people. By the time they wake up in the morning, especially if they had an early dinner and they haven't eaten for a while, their fasting insulin will be normal. But when they go to eat, their insulin skyrockets and it stays elevated throughout the day. So that person will have high blood pressure, high triglycerides, whatever, multiple signs and symptoms of high insulin, even if the fasting level is normal. So there's so a lot of moving pieces. But, but we, we did cover something that can be used in those situations with craft mm -hmm. tests, and we'll get right. to that in a second. But I think the main point here is that exactly like you said, a lot of the times, by the time blood sugar starts rising into pathological ranges, it's already too late. That's a late stage indicator. 
And what Amy is saying here is there are early stage indicators that individuals can get themselves. And that includes things like fasting insulin and HOMA IR. And so we covered HOMA IR in the third post in much more detail. For those who are interested in it, we go into details on how it's calculated, what the reference ranges are. And then the fourth one, we actually did a case study where, like a lot of people, my doctor had never ordered fasting insulin. And I wanted to know. I wanted to be proactive because either I'd read a blog post or I'd done some research and I've said, okay, I know my blood sugar is normal, which it was in my case. I've never had fasting insulin, but I want to get it done. My doctor probably won't order it for me. Or even if they do, there's a good chance my insurance company will reject it and send me some exorbitant bill for the cost of the test, which is 10x what I could buy it for myself <laughs> online. So how do we get around this problem? So in the fourth series, I did a case study and you can read about it, but I just went to, Amy outlined at least five places where you can just go online and buy your own tests. And this can be very helpful if you need to bypass insurance or bypass an uncooperative doctor. Now, this, is, this is, of course, in the U.S. If somebody out there yeah. is watching this from another country, it might not be applicable. And I think there's one or two states in the U.S. where this is not allowed. I'm not sure. Right. I think New Jersey might be one. There's like a couple of states where you're not allowed to do your own lab work, but in most states you can. Yeah. So if you go to these websites like wellnessfx, requestatest.com, there's a bunch that we published where you can go order your own test. They'll tell you if you can get it in your state. I think you're right. There's two that don't allow it. But all I did was I went to requestatest.com. I ordered a fasting insulin test. I think it was $59. I put the price on there. I ordered a fasting glucose test, $29. And I printed the form off myself. No doctor, no insurance, out of pocket. I wanted to just be proactive and find out myself. And so it was like 80 bucks. I got the results back. Actually, for extra nerd points, what I did was I actually took my glucometer to the lab and I tested my blood sugar right before they put the needle in my arm to see how accurate my glucometer was. And at that time, I was using the Bayer Contour. Now mm -hmm. I'm using Keto Mojo. But the Bayer was like pretty much right on point with what the results came back from Quest Diagnostics. Anyhow, I digress. I got the insulin, I got the glucose, and then I went and calculated the HOMA IR. In the blog post, we give a link. You just plug in both numbers, insulin, glucose. It spits out your HOMA IR, and then you can match up to where you stand according to the HOMA IR score. My numbers were fine, but the reason we wrote that post, Amy, was so that we could show people how to do it themselves if they need to. And mm -hmm. we talked a lot about some of the reasons why that may be. But what are you seeing with clients who, who may need to do this testing? Or do you, you have any other additional comments on just do-it-yourself lab testing? Yeah, I just think the main thing is people shouldn't be afraid to do it themselves. You don't, you know, thank goodness in this day and age, you don't need to go through your doctor for every little thing. Especially when, unfortunately, there are so many doctors who are just uninformed about the importance Absolutely. of some of these tests. So if your doctor is uncooperative and just won't order it, order it yourself. Um, yep. Directlabs.com, a fasting insulin is $34 and it's worth every penny. Yes. Um, now, I, I understand not everyone even has the budget for that, so it, it may not be practical for everybody to pay out of pocket, which Agreed. is fine. But, you know, if you can... There is no reason not to do it on your own. Like, don't, don't let an uncooperative doctor or insurance company get in your way of improving your own health. You no, know, I, I write about this all the time. Nobody cares about your health more than you do. Nobody wants you to feel better more than you do. Not even your doctor, who you're paying and whose job it is to do this. Yes. So that's what we covered in, in the fourth series. And if there's people out there who want to be proactive and run your own tests, maybe you've never done it before. It's actually pretty easy. And there's a bunch of ways to get it done. If you're curious, it's not like you need to buy these tests every month. Mm -hmm. It's something you just need to do and get a baseline number. And you're probably good to go for 12 or 18 months until you want to test again and, and maybe see how your progress has come along. So mm -hmm. the next one we looked at, Amy, again, this is, this is a loaded topic. So there's, there's a lot to cover here. But that's looking at the full thyroid panel. And... This has implications all over the place. That was the issue I had when I had to work on my health, subclinical thyroid issues that mm. don't show up with a TSH test. So there's a lot to unpack here, but maybe let's just talk about the thyroid panel in general with some basics. There's a lot of directions we could go on this with low-carb, keto, and thyroid, but let's just lay out for people what is the thyroid test 
maybe we should probably mention that a lot of the times TSH is the only test that a lot of people have ever had done and why you might need to order the full panel and then just map it back to like low carb keto and, and what are some of the issues you're seeing or not seeing or dispel any myths about thyroid and keto and, and low carb and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah um, a lot there. Sorry. I <laughs> know uh, that's okay. Thyroid is um, a huge topic, huge just in case anyone out there isn't aware, the thyroid gland is this little butterfly-shaped gland that's kind of in your neck, uh, wrapped around your trachea, I think. And they call it the master regulator of your metabolism. Which if is you're what we're all working on at the end of the day with, yeah. with low carb. Yeah. If you metabolism. are one of these people who eats a really good diet and exercises your butt off and you can't lose one ounce it could be a thyroid problem. And thyroid function affects so many metabolic processes that it's not just your whole metabolic rate slows down. So it's, you know, the rate at which you burn energy, whether it's fat or carbs or anything. It's why you get depression as a hallmark of low thyroid, because even your emotions, everything is just low and sluggish. You get constipated, you're cold all the time. Your body's ability to generate heat, to burn fuel for heat, your body's, the, the movement of waste through your cold and literally every single thing slows down and it's why you feel like garbage when you have low thyroid. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is true. If you're hyperthyroid, if your thyroid is firing too, too much, you're hot all the time, your heart is racing, you tend to lose weight, you tend to have loose stools. It's, it's like the dead opposite of being hypothyroid. And I think that hypothyroidism, especially sort of subclinical where the numbers are just a little on the low side, is wickedly underdiagnosed mm -hmm. because I see so many people really doing what, what we would consider all the right things yes. and they struggle so hard to lose weight and they're depressed and they're constipated it's and they're tired. Especially when yes. you see everybody else having success and hey, this thing, this, this lifestyle works amazing and, and I'm not having any results. It's, it's completely disheartening and it may be from something completely, you, like you said, you could be doing everything perfect mm -hmm. and maybe that's the time to start looking at thyroid. Yeah. And, and when, so when you do look at thyroid and if anyone out there watching, I have dealt with hypothyroidism. I'm not going to share with you my tale of woe, but there's a reason that I know so much about this because I've been through it and it was a nightmare. Part of the problem as to why this is so underdiagnosed is that the lab ranges, I think, are a little too generous. And also, like you said earlier, many doctors will only order one or two tests. They order TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, which doesn't come from the thyroid gland at all. It comes from the pituitary gland. Mm -hmm. The pituitary gland secretes TSH that tells the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. The primary hormone that the thyroid gland itself makes is T4. So some doctors will measure TSH and T4 thing is, T4 is not the most powerful, most active form of thyroid hormone. The most powerful form is T3. T4 from the thyroid has to be converted to T3 in other parts of the body. If this conversion is not happening right, your TSH could be normal, your T4 could be normal, but you still have signs and symptoms of hypo or hyperthyroidism. And I think for me personally, and some of the physicians I know, we can use the numbers as a guide. If somebody brings me lab work or, you know, I, I'm not a physician, I can only sort of interpret to my extent sure. of knowledge as a nutritionist, but I help people based on how they tell me they feel. I'm not going to say I don't care what the numbers say. I, I do use the numbers as a guide, but I'm so much more interested in how someone feels. Are they symptomatic? Do they have clear, obvious screaming signs of low or high thyroid? Just like you um, described, cold hands, difficulty losing weight, depression, yeah. mood issues, elevated heart rate. So those Hair are the loss. I mean, everything. things you're asking about that are the clues for you. Is that correct? Right. Right. Cool. And because a lot of, some people will say, oh, well, no, my doctor tested my thyroid. They said it's normal. And I say, no, you had your TSH tested. That's not enough. If you have signs and symptoms of hypo or hyperthyroidism, then I do recommend what's called a comprehensive thyroid panel. We, we went into great detail on the blog. There's about like six or eight different hormones and different other things that you want to have tested. Because yep. if there is a problem, only knowing the TSH or the T4 isn't going to tell you where the problem is. If you measure all those other things, you can see where in those biochemical pathways the obstacle is, if there is one. 
That's exactly my experience as well. I'll just interject my own experience here. I have always had normal TSH, like right around 1.0. Mm-hmm. And also, like you described, perfect. But then I looked at T3. It was out of range low. Mm-hmm. And I looked at reverse T3, which basically means something went wrong with the conversion. So there's a byproduct, which is reverse T3. That was out of range high. And so working with my functional medicine doctor, it was clear that those first two numbers, like you said, which most people look at, were totally normal. So on paper, I looked good, but it was T3 and reverse T3 that were out of range. So I had a, an issue somewhere along the chain. And then the other thing that you should look for are the thyroid antibodies as well, Mm -hmm. because those will indicate the presence of an autoimmune condition and so, or could indicate the presence of an autoimmune condition. And there's some other markers in the full thyroid panel, but Amy covered all of it on the blog post. And so hopefully this discussion has given people, first of all, some, some subjective things they can compare and see if any of those align. And then also what to do if you think you need to get more information. And that's what we covered on the full thyroid panel. Anything else to add there, Amy? Well, yeah, I want to emphasize, you know, going back to the do-it-yourself lab testing, this is such a good example of, you know, my doctor says it's normal. People are so afraid to trust themselves and their own instincts. You know when you don't feel well. You know when something's not right. And you don't need your doctor, you don't need a medical degree to say, I feel terrible and I know that something's not right. And people, I'm really like, I'm not trying to badmouth doctors because you and I both know some excellent, amazing physicians. Mm -hmm. But for every excellent one, there's probably five horrible ones who who are clueless. And someone watching out there might have just gotten stuck with one of the, I'm not going to say dumb, one of the uninformed doctors. And you are completely well within your rights to get a new doctor. If you feel like your doctor is not listening to you, if they're not cooperating with you, if they don't respect you as a patient, as a, as a, as a person who's informed about their own health, if they're not willing to even listen to you, get a new doctor because you deserve someone who's going to help you feel better. And I think even if you're uh, just a non-medical person, there's a lot of people out there who are listening to all the podcasts, reading all of the information. A lot of the times the general public is starting to become more informed about what the latest tests are and what the latest science is. And you may be working with a physician who is well-intentioned, but is simply not keeping up with the latest science that we as, as individuals now have access to. So again, those are situations where, at least within the U.S., you have the ability to go run some of your own labs. I'm not sure how it works in other countries, but again, that's one of the things that Amy and I emphasized is if you think you need to, go order your own full thyroid panel. It might cost you 100 bucks, but you'll see your own T3s and reverse T3s and, and thyroid antibodies. So Again, just tools that are available to people and then work with someone who can help you interpret the data. Yeah. Now, did you, did you want me to touch on the low carb as it relates to thyroid? Yeah, that'd be awesome. What are you seeing out so, there, Amy? Yeah. So a lot of people have heard that a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet can actually cause hypothyroidism. And that is not really true in some people some of the thyroid hormone measurements change. But just because a measurement has gone higher or lower doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. Again, if you are completely asymptomatic and you feel great, it doesn't matter if your T3 has lowered a little bit. That's typically what's seen in some people, at least on a low carb diet, the T3 is lower. Got it. If you feel great, doesn't matter if your T3 is lower, right? Just like we said before, if you feel terrible, it doesn't matter if your TSH is normal. So Um, don't freak out. You may be feeling more energetic, you're losing weight, you're feeling good, but the T3 number goes down. That's not a bad thing in all cases. Right. Dr. Stephen Finney, who's very well known in the low carb world, you know, been researching this literally 30 or 40 years. One of the OGs. Yes, one of the OGs, like one of the go-to guys. He has speculated, and it is speculation because we don't know what the answers are for sure, but he believes that the decrease in T3 is almost a beneficial thing, proving that your body has become more sensitive to thyroid hormone. You're almost more efficient. Your body requires less thyroid stimulation to have energy and to be burning fat, which we would take as an improvement you requiring less of a hormonal stimulus to just do the things your body's supposed to do. 
Yep. And, and, and I, so I, I will say one, one thing that I do see though is women, especially mm-hmm. women and especially younger women, 20s and 30s, who do show signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism after being low carb for a while. But I don't think that's because of low carb. I think those women have inadvertently been for lack of a better word, starving themselves, they are dramatically under consuming total energy, total calories without realizing it and without intending to. So I don't think that's because of low carb. I think it's not enough food and, and over exercising usually without enough recovery. So there, there are ways to ruin your own thyroid. Let's, let's be clear are. about that. That have yes. nothing to do with eating a proper low-carb plan. One of them is right. not eating enough, which actually it's, it, it's not hard to do because you're just not as hungry. So you, you tend to eat less or you may not be proper. You may be overtraining and actually overstressing your body or you yes. may not be getting enough sodium or you may not be replenishing electrolytes. Yes, these things can cause thyroid problems, but that has nothing to do with low carb, th- those are things that you need to manage as you go down this path. Is that a good way to think about it? Yes, yes. And it's, it's something that could happen on any diet, vegetarian, right. high carb, paleo, whatever. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So we're getting a couple more that we covered, Amy. The other one was, you touched on this before, the Kraft Insulin Essay, which looks at actually, again, to go back to that word, postprandial, it actually looks at postprandial insulin response. And that is another test where Dr. Kraft has done this. I think I read his book. He's done like 27,000 of these postprandial insulin essays. And that is the absolute earliest indicator of metabolic issue is as, as he describes it. So I think that was part seven in the series, which is, again, uh, all on the blog. There's much more detail on this. But can you just uh, briefly cover the, uh, the Kraft insulin? What is, what is it and, and when should you use it? So, yeah, the Kraft test is named after Dr. Joseph Kraft, who was the guy who – he's the one who identified the problem of all these people with normal glucose but very, very high insulin. So what the Kraft test is – So they have the is, symptoms, like you described earlier. They've got all these symptoms of metabolic disease, and they go mm-hmm. to the doctor, and, and the blood tests are normal. Right. So that's, that's kind of where this slots in. Right. So the Kraft test is an oral glucose tolerance test except instead of only testing your blood sugar, they test insulin. And the normal oral glucose tolerance test is only a two-hour test. The craft test is five hours. So you drink, I think it's either 75 or 100 grams of liquid glucose. Mm -hmm. And then every hour, they test your glucose and insulin. Yes. And this is what, this will identify those people who have a totally normal glucose, even after drinking all that glucose, but their insulin is through the roof. Now, just- These people are diabetic, according to Dr. Kraft. They have normal blood glucose, but they are still diagnosed as type 2 diabetic. He, he can identify these cases years or decades before there's an official blood sugar reading that gets them a diagnosis, correct? Yeah. So the problem with the way that type 2 diabetes is diagnosed is that it's only diagnosed through blood sugar. They never, ever look at insulin. If they did, they would catch this much, much earlier. Now, what this really is, is metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. They call it syndrome X. It used to be called insulin resistance syndrome, but Somehow they like removed insulin and pretend it doesn't matter, even though it's the single most important factor in the entire syndrome. And the thing is, though, you, you do have to, for anyone out there who has been eating a low-carb or ketogenic diet for any significant length of time, I don't recommend this craft test. It's really not necessary. If you've yep. been doing low-carb for a while, you shouldn't need it. Your mm-hmm. insulin should be improving. Even if it's still high, it should be getting better. But if for some reason somebody wants to get this test done or somebody's not, well, if you are following a low carb diet and you just want to get this done for whatever crazy reason, you have to carb up. Do not go all of a sudden one day to the lab and get this test done. You are going to get a false result that's going to make you look like a wild diabetic. You have to reaccustom, just like you had an adaptation period when you started keto, where your body had to get used to burning fat, your body has to get reaccustomed to burning carbs. And I've I've actually consulted with a bunch of physicians who, who have seen this in patients. They recommend five to seven days of 100 to 150 grams of carbs a day before getting this test. 
But frankly, I just don't recommend it. I don't see the point. I think HOMA IR is enough, fructosamine is enough. You shouldn't need this craft test. It's, it's interesting. It's, it provides us a huge amount of, of knowledge that we didn't have before, but I just don't recommend it for most people. So I have a family member who is not on a low carb diet, but had a fasting insulin that was slightly elevated. Let's say it was in the 12 to 13 range. Fasting glucose looked good, was healthy, was physically active, but the lipids were completely out of whack. And so I think in that case, it was helpful because we wanted to rule things out. And we saw fasting insulin a little bit high, but not like, okay, there's a red flag here. Mm -hmm. So we did use that. And we wanted to see if that would reveal some insulin resistance that was not showing up in the standard test. Like you said, fasting insulin could be normal, but mm-hmm. your, your postprandial insulin is, is off the charts. Fortunately, his craft results actually came back really good, and mm-hmm. we were able to rule that out. Okay. So I think there are some corner cases where it can be helpful. That was one where we used it. But for those who are curious about the test, we cover it in way more detail. So that was, uh, I think that was the most recent one we've done. And then maybe we can just segue into the one that's not published yet, but is written. Mm-hmm. And that is part eight in our low carb series, calcium score, which is one that actually for us in our little low carb keto bubble is probably something we're quite familiar with. But for many other people, this could be completely new to them. So um, help us understand that one. So we are talking about something called the coronary artery calcium or CAC. So I I might just call it CAC. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just call it a heart scan. It is an... uh, is it an EKG? Not an EKG. It's an, like an X-ray it's of the an imaging, heart. some kind of imaging. That- yeah. Why? There's a name. I'm forgetting the exact name. Whatever. It's it's a it's an image of the heart that instead of the first thing to know is that the amount of cholesterol that they measure in your blood, including the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, even though that's a misnomer, the amount of cholesterol in your blood tells you nothing about the amount of atherosclerotic plaque, quote unquote, clogging your arteries, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, totally, it's, it doesn't tell you anything about the degree of damage to your blood vessels that would cause heart disease or a heart attack or stroke. When you do this coronary artery calcium scan, it actually measures the amount of plaque in your coronary artery. So calcification, sh- rust. Yeah, the calcification, the it shows you the da- the actual existing damage to your arteries, not some indirect, unrelated measurement like cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So there are so many people, whether low carb or not, but very, very many in the low carb community who have a total cholesterol over 200, 300, 400 cholesterol. So you think, oh my God, this person's a ticking time bomb. They're going to have a heart attack any second. They get one of these CAC scans They have zero calcification of the arteries, zero damage to the blood vessels, extremely low risk. Yeah, low inflammation, everything. Low inflammation, insulin's low, you know, very, very low risk for cardiovascular disease. So this, it's it's kind of like insulin. It's one of the most important tests that's not standard. Now, of course, this is a much more expensive test than an insulin blood test, but um, for somebody that has very, very high cholesterol, but thinks they eat a very healthy diet, they exercise, they have a good lifestyle, the CAC test might be worth doing because it will give you proof of whether or not your arteries are in good shape. And if your score is very low, I think they say it's like a 10 or 15 year warranty, like you shouldn't need to get that done again for 10 or 15 years. So it is a score. It, it, it gives you a score between zero and I, I don't know how high it goes, over a thousand for sure lower being better. And mm-hmm. there are lots of individuals, particularly a lot of the people who are following Dave Feldman's work, right. who are also, they're, they're following his protocols, getting the calcium mm-hmm. score just to basically get some peace of mind that's saying, yes, I'm getting some heat from the doc. The, the lipids are a little bit elevated, but there is absolutely no calcification or evidence of coronary artery disease whatsoever. So that's why we covered the calcium score. I actually learned about this last year at KetoFest, which was put mm-hmm. on by the Keto Dudes, two Keto Dudes out at New London, Connecticut. They showed the documentary, The Widowmaker, uh-uh. which goes into a whole bunch of detail about the whole history behind 
why we ended up using stents as the standard of care instead of using calcium score as a test, as a predictor first of whether we even need to go there. So I think you may have referenced that documentary in the blog post, but that goes into way more detail on the history and backstory in the medical system. But that is another test that Amy covers, extremely helpful for understanding your overall cardiovascular risk. So, yeah, and I think you you kind of brought up a good point that that's it's a really good test to have done to give you as an individual patient peace of mind, but also frankly to get your doctor off your back <laughs> if your doctor is hounding you. Yep. Yeah, if if your doctor is hounding you because your your cholesterol is high and they want to give you a statin, you know you can maybe get this test done and say, look, doc, my my arteries are clear, zero calcium scan. I'm not taking anything, or or still take it, make your own informed decision. But then you'll have the visible proof as to whether or not your arteries are blocked or not. Well, we covered a lot of ground here, Amy. We did a summary of everything we've covered on the series so far, and we're hoping to continue this series as we uncover more tests that we want to unpack and educate people about. So thank you for all the work you've done on the blog. We love Amy here at Heads Up. She's (laughs) for us. And before we go, Amy, what would be in, in everything you've you've come across and learned in your in your own personal journeys and and through the work you do with clients and the writing and and all of the work you've done? What advice would you pass on to others who are really just starting down the path of taking control of their health? Any specific pieces of advice that are are, are most personally relevant to you? It depends on where somebody's starting from. Sure. You know, what what kind of... Because I don't think a ketogenic diet or a very low-carb diet is appropriate for everybody. So I can't even say do a low-carb diet. I mean, for most people, yeah, that's probably a good place to start. If somebody has a, a metabolic high insulin type problem, I do think a low carb diet is is the most powerful, simplest, easiest thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, something I write about all the time is also not to let this completely rule every waking moment of your life. Absolutely agree 100%. Yeah. Eat good food, make the right choices as often as you can. Try to make this the new normal for you. Not like, like the good low carb food is the rule, not the exception. And every now and then, if you have a piece of cheesecake, you're not a bad person. You know, I, because I, I see the opposite side of this. I do see people getting too obsessed over the food. Absolutely. And every I little think everyone can be a victim of that. Yeah. Certainly myself. So, sometimes where I've just had to take a step back from everything. Yeah. Yeah. So let, you know, let this improve your life. And if it's getting to a point where it's actually detracting from it and detracting from your quality of life, take a breath, take a break, take, take a day or two off from the blogs and the websites and the, you know, even mine, even Dave's take one day or two days, don't read anything, come back. The content will still be there three days later. I go crush a cheeseburger and fries when I start stressing out. Just for and the you record. know what? You know I what? think I think that's good for the Call soul. Call me crazy. I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> what's What's your go to? Oh, You're going God. off the wagon. It's. I've actually been doing really well lately. I haven't had anything late. I mean, sometimes it's whatever's handy. Sure. I do. I do love me some cheesecake though. But I mean, there cheesecake is so easy to make low carb. But I so don't. Yeah, indulgences. Right. I'm. I, I'm a big believer. In that part of enjoying life is, is having indulgences and letting ourselves enjoy the finer things in and, life. And, and yeah. Happens. And the thing is, the more you do the right thing, the less damage, the less anything, I the very occasional really blip on the radar does. You just move it. on and it's no big deal. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you. Where can people find your work? Um, well, my, my, I do write at headsuphealth.com on the blog, but my own blog is grateful for that work. Thank thank you. you. My blog is to it nutrition, T U I T nutrition.com. And I'm also very active on Twitter. My handle is to it nutrition. Cool. Thanks, Amy. I'm sure we're going to have a lot more to cover as we write more, but, um, I think this was awesome. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Good to, good to see you again. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio.